millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can't be you in the city or you can have just out of it? Uh, actually, pretty in it. I mean, not it's not a big, huge... Uh, I'm not in the middle of downtown where the high-rises are, but I'm just east of downtown. Good stuff. I think Austin, actually. It's about a million. I can't remember where it is now. It's growing like crazy and has been for several years now. Is it not supposed to be? Is it like a lot of Californians and stuff kind of migrating there? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, 150 people a day or something moving here, or they were before the pandemic. I don't know what it's like now. That's crazy. Yeah, it wow. was. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, so they couldn't stop. They couldn't build apartments and houses fast enough because there were just so many people moving. I mean, there were some people moving out, but nowhere near 150 a day. Why so many? Out of interest. It got on all these lists of best places to live in the country, and. You know, people figure it out even before the pandemic that they didn't have to pay California mortgages and rents uh, to do their jobs. And so companies moved here, people, individuals moved here and worked remotely. You know, it, it was a really cool and affordable town. And now it's a somewhat less cool and much more expensive town. I still like it, but, you know, it's going through, I'd say, growing pains. Yeah, I'll just take a kind of moment to readjust to the new way of things i suppose exactly you're so you're in glasgow i'm back in aberdeenshire at the moment actually i'm usually glasgow but we're back in another lockdown at the moment so i kind of migrated back to my folks for a little bit got it so you're on the east coast yeah northeast right up in the kind of corner cool we were up just west of you last year not not for work or anything just for fun Drinking scotch and <laughs> seeing seeing pretty mountains and stuff. Where about were you? Uh, when when all over? So right in the middle of that park to the west of you. Um, what was the name of the town? The kind of Cairngorms. Yeah, exactly. And so a bunch of towns there, and then we went up to Isle of Skye and all that. 
beautiful. It's a beautiful drive, like if you go around the full coast. Yeah, it's stunning. I, yeah. I've been to Scotland a couple of times now. And what's the closest distillery for, to you? I should have uh, drank a bottle of that. Closest? There's one at Old Meldrum, which is quite close to me, just a small one. Uh, there's a, quite a few dotted about up here, though. You've kind of got Dufton, which is Glenfiddich. And yeah. Aberlour is not too far away either. There's a really nice modern distillery up at Aberlour, actually. Like they've built this massive kind of open, like glass top building. It's beautiful. Like into the side of the hill. It's pretty incredible. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, fun. And what's the small one near you? Old Meldrum. Old Meldrum. I don't know. I don't, don't know that one. I don't think we get that one over here. I can't, I, I'm not sure what brand of whiskey it is. That's just the name of the town. Um, yeah, Scotland's quite good for a holiday because you can kind of, if you're coming over from America, you can kind of do the full country in like a week and a half, a couple of weeks. Oh, Glen Garriach. I have, I have a bottle of that. So tonight I'll drink, a, <laughs> a, I'll drink that and, and think of you in Old Melbourne. <laughs> a Meldrum. Are you a, are you a big Scotch drinker? You a fan? Uh, I am a fan. Uh, so I, I've got, I've been slowly trying to drink something from every distillery in Scotland and I'm a, about 80% of the way through. That's pretty good going. How many distilleries in Scotland? A couple hundred or something. It's, it's not as many as you would think. It's, I mean, it changes, of course, but it's like 130, 140, something like that. And I'm somewhere around 100 that I've done. I guess it's the kind of same as everything. The independent ones are kind of finding it harder to survive. Yeah, yeah. As the big brands closing. Exactly. Are, you, are you in your studio at the moment? I am. Is that a separate building? In Austin, or is that kind of attached to the side of your house? It's it's attached. It was built. It was built purposely as a studio, but it was built attached. I like not having to leave the house in order to go to work. I just wander down the hall, and then I'm in the studio. I guess you kind of get that good middle round where you actually have a different place that you have to go, but you don't have to travel very far to get to it. Yeah, it's it's the best of both worlds where it feels separate. It's like I'm definitely going to the place where I work and create, but it's not. It's not the home part of, of it. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Is the whole kind of building wooden inside? I'm just having a look now. It looks like you've got like wooden panels and stuff. Yeah, that ceiling is old picket fences. Um, and yeah, that they did in that herringbone pattern. This, the floors are wood and the bookshelves are wood. So a ton of wood and six, you know, 16 foot or so ceilings. So it, the sound is pretty good in here. Yeah, get a nice kind of acoustic thing going. Yeah. I can see you've got, you're quite a big reader too, right? Yes, I, uh, I do like to read. And this has been a good year for reading. <laughs> Not much else to do. No, yeah. I mean, it, you know, all the things that I like to do the most are really easy to do at home. Make music and read books and, uh, and walk around in nature. And, you know, you can do all those things without being near anybody. Will you go through phases when it comes to reading? Do you kind of read about a certain subject or is it just pretty free-flowing? It's a bit of both. I'm definitely a deep dive. If I get interested in the subject, I order a whole mess of books and I've got a stack of books. And I'll, Or if I get into an author, I'll get a whole bunch of their books and, and, and do that. But I've almost always got quite a few books going at the same time. It can be nice to dip between two, like if you have a non-fiction and a fiction one going gives you a bit of a balance yeah exactly exactly one gives a break from the other and you come back with a clear head it's like making music you know you switch projects and then come back and then you have a fresh perspective do you find you read more fiction or non-fiction pretty equal i'd say i mean i read a bunch of poetry and i read some like 
plays or scripts as well, and then a lot of nonfiction and then novels. I, I'd say I read short stories, maybe the the least of the basic categories, because the starting I find to be the hardest thing, and, and short stories ask you to start over and over again. <laughs> I guess if you get a short book, uh, short stories, it can be okay. Yeah, no, I enjoy short stories, and uh, you know, I've like Alice Munro or or James Baldwin. Um, there are some great short story writers that um, George Saunders that you know hard to resist. Yeah, I read a great small kind of collection of short stories recently. Oh, they were kind of evolved around the same character. It was called Jesus's Son. I can't remember who wrote it though. Oh, that is the that's my favorite short story book ever. Is it actually that's Dennis. Oh yeah, Dennis Johnson. He actually taught here in Austin for a little while. But yeah, that that like uh, Alice Monroe's uh, big work. What is it called? Um, you know the the stories are connected. So you you're you're. It's not like starting over each time, even though they could stand alone. That you're getting deeper into this world and in this interconnected way. So it's both like it's a novelistic short story collection. It's intriguing too when you have a slightly unreliable narrator. Kind of gives it a little bit of spice. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, you, you were in Glasgow, and uh, which may remind me of Kelman, who I uh, met uh, years ago. You know James Kelman. I'm unfamiliar. Uh, he's a Glasgow-based. Uh, what's what's his big book? Um, when was he kind of in prominence? I would say 20 years ago. He was the biggest deal, and one of them. How Late It Was, How Late was his big novel hit in 94. But it's, it's all very, it's in, you know, to, in dialect to a degree and uh, like an amazing, Scott, all of his books are fantastic. Um, so we had a, the, my partner, she and her company adapted one of his novels into a play. And so we had a week of hanging out with him and all his Glasgow friends <laughs> and drinking a lot and hearing Scottish stories. Nice. Is he kind of similar to Irvin Welsh, that kind of Scottish colloquial type thing? Yeah. Um, I'd say Irvin Welsh is more raw and Kelman is, I mean, he, there's not, it's plenty visceral as well. I mean, at least with train spot, it's not as like bad boy as train spotting, I would say. Yeah. A little um, bit more you know. balance between the light and dark. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Was that the first time you met him? when you came over here we he actually came over here so that's uh the first time i went to scotland it was for uh to to i was doing live accompaniment to a theater piece uh and so it was like a live radio serial sci-fi radio serial that we did in edinburgh so yeah i went around you know being a tourist all day and performing at night and then uh, drinking as many scotches as i could after that <laughs> living the dream yeah, ex- oh it was great <laughs> i mean what an amazing trip how how did Kelman compare to what you expected of him based upon his writing? He kind of lives the stereotype. Uh, hard, living hard, drinking, fun, loud, full of stories. And uh, like, I don't know, you know, Gla- Glaswegian versus other areas, but uh, it, it felt like what you, hanging out with him and his whole crew, felt like what you would imagine hanging out with a bunch of Glaswegians to be. <laughs> Yeah, the rest of, uh, the rest of Scotland's a little bit tamer in comparison to Glasgow. I think. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I sometimes get a bottle of white and Mackay to, uh, which is very cheap over here, to uh, put me a, a bit into the Glasgow mindset. <laughs> 
Do you ever find that with music as well? You know, if you listen to a piece of music that's very connected to something for you, it can kind of transport you into the mindset of where you are at a different point in your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love travel in, in a, quote, real way, uh, but I also love armchair travel. So, you know, I'll, I'll get into, I'll read novels, cookbooks, poetry, history, all about a place and really as well as listening to the music, all to really immerse into it. Like China is a good example where I've been to China a few times, but also have read a lot of ancient Chinese poetry in translation. I don't, I don't, I wish I could read uh, Mandarin, but I'll read the poetry. I'll read the history. I'll read contemporary uh, novelists and things like that. And as well as cooking the food and like Chinese percussion has definitely been an influence on me uh, and some some of that really has informed some of the work I do. In terms of what you were saying there about you know armchair traveling and really immersing yourself in the world of something was that kind of a similar process when it came to the opera that's going coming out virtually I think on Friday or it came out once before the um Poncho Villa from a distance. Yeah. So that I mean that is a world I've been immersing myself in since I was about eight or nine, really. So uh, that has a whole long history behind it. I guess I was about nine, and we went on a trip to Mexico City with my family, and it was the first time I was out of the country. It was the first time I was in a place where English wasn't the, the, the primary language. Uh, just the first time I felt so clearly other. Uh, and I had an amazing trip, and so it made this huge impression on me. And the the, the paintings made the the muralists in particular made a big impression on me. The food, the orange juice, uh, uh, kind of everything about it. And then in my adult life, then I moved to Texas, which of course used to be part of Mexico and has uh, not only a large uh, Mexican American population, but a huge portion of Mexican culture woven in. And now spend every year, go to Mexico at least once or twice. So I've, I've built up this you know, personal relationship to Mexico. And then I'd always wanted to work with uh, Mexican and Mexican American artists on, uh, on, uh, on a project that sort of dove into that. And we had this commission out in West Texas and we we're driving around West Texas looking for an operatic figure and figured out the Pancho Villa used to live in El Paso, which is right across the river uh, from Juarez. So right on the U.S. Uh, and Mexico border. And that's, that became the subject for the opera and another excuse to dive further into Mexican history. As soon as you found out about him, did ideas immediately begin to spark? Yeah, exactly. Immediately started creating ideas and making music. And I really like to do works in progress and try out ideas at shows and things like that. Uh, so just, you know, rough charts and then improvise on them and see what's working with an audience. And so we spent a couple of years really doing that um, and then spending more time in West Texas and in Chihuahua, Mexico, uh, as well as in Mexico City, working with La Gartillas, uh, our, our librettist collaborators. And, and so really fully immersed in that. And of course, read a whole bunch of books about Pancho Villa and all that. I also studied Latin American history in college, so it really all wove together. And the, the, the opera's bilingual as well, right? It's both in Spanish and in English. 
exactly. It's not a straight narrative or a straight biography. It, it's like a collage of scenes from his life and from the Mexican Revolution, both on the Mexican side and on the El Paso side. And so it's mostly in Spanish, but with a bunch of interludes that are in English. Do you find the two languages have quite a different musicality to each other? Yes. Uh, there are more natural rhymes in, in and, and it's just an easier flow in Spanish than in English. English is such a mashup uh, that it can be a very awkward language to work with musically. Yeah. It's funny then that a lot of the world's music you know you'll go to a lot of these countries that speak spanish in europe and stuff or speak german and all, all the music is kind of still in english and not all the music but a large portion of it when it's kind of so poor at rhyming in that way yeah it's you know these trends i mean it used to be that th- like all opera was in italian and then you know mozart and beethoven start re- rebelling a bit and the sort of lingua franca and at the moment it seems like uh, english is the international language and that might be here to stay for a good while because these things are slow to change but it's strange that it's such an unmusical language has become the dominant musical language there was a guy who was it that hit billboard number one last year though it was a spanish or i think it was it was a guy rapping in spanish oh um is it jay balvin no, no, I, can't, mm. no. I can't remember uh, it, it, yeah. i feel like is the is we kind of move past genre though in terms of the way kind of the, the culture yeah um digest music it could start to move away from that a little bit and we could start to see the languages open up Uh, yeah i think that's that's i mean having those spanish uh hits cross over into uh what what here at least is mainstream pop is is an exciting moment where you see just more cultural diversity being embraced in this very real way it's one thing to talk about it or do it in like these environments where it's easy to sort of curate the, the the inclusivity but pop music is such a just straight up commercial enterprise as far as the, at least the business end of it that it's happening naturally that that it's that the it's getting more diverse is an exciting development and as a result of it being such a commercial thing if they see something like that being successful they'll start to kind of chase it a little bit and look for something in a similar vein that could also take off which could then spread that yeah off. exactly I, I see no reason why this wouldn't keep heading in in that direction. Yeah, that is the invigorating thing about mainstream music is that when one thing kind of catches a light, it sparks a wave that kind of takes off. Yeah, exactly. When those things are are inspiring musically, it, it can be exciting to see. Uh, you know, variations on on a theme is just a classic way to do things, and in its own weird way, pop music does that, where you know a certain kind of beat comes on, like the reggaeton beat which is so simple, and yet there had been 20 years or more of, of hits and variations revolving around that basic beat. It's always in there, and it's the core of it, but the music keeps going down different, off different branch points. Is that the same in a score? Like if you kind of find the theme for a character and then you can kind of put it in different contexts and settings and play around with it a little bit? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know... I mean, the leitmotif you associate with Wagner, but um, I really think of Beethoven being the one, for me at least, that this most uh, the, had the most command of motivic variation. The Beethoven's Fifth, since everybody knows, is the easiest one to think of, where he takes that those four notes 
And those four notes become this basis for this gigantic epic thing. And he keeps flipping them upside down and, and connecting them and transposing them and doing everything he can with those four notes. And so it doesn't feel like you're hearing a little thing, but it is all based on this tiny, tiny little idea. That's why I enjoy hearing what people would do with these pop music ideas or what jazz ideas or whatever it might be, where they take something small and simple and clear. And like with Beethoven's fifth, all you hear at the beginning are those four notes. There's nothing else going on. So it's very clear teaching the audience, here is your theme. Here is your tiny little motif. And everybody learns it. And then he does a variation on it immediately by pitching it down. And then he's off and running. And so I really like when you give the audience a chance in that way, where you teach them this vocabulary that you've invented and then explore it and and they can you know to whatever degree their sort of listening skills and music theory knowledge allows they can follow along with you on that exploration beethoven makes it very easy for the most casual listener to follow that but also people obviously spend their lifetime studying beethoven scores and so there's a huge depth there but with this very accessible exterior it's almost like reeling in a fish once you get that hook in at the start and you've got them you can kind of <laughs> take them wherever you want yeah it's <laughs> exactly you you i mean that's the idea of the the hook and you know there it's you know beethoven or a jazz player is not using it in the same way that a pop song uses a hook but the idea of it catching and then that creates interest and why do you keep listening because you want to know what happens to that character and that character is that theme that hook do does the hook and the rest of the music almost come from your brain then do you have to kind of tackle them in separate ways it can i mean the hook can come the generation of that those themes can come from all sorts of different directions if i'm understanding your question but i mean Sometimes it just comes out of your head. Sometimes it comes out of improvising. Sometimes it comes out of uh, extracting something, you know, like like a classic beat that you extract and then manipulate into make your own personal version of that beat. And so it's got that core, uh, but you've changed it and personalized it and made it yours. So it can be intellectual or it can be emotional or it, it, it can come from any any of a myriad of directions do you know as soon as you have it as soon as you stumble upon that do you know that's going to be the hook <laughs> sometimes you know sometimes you think you know and so like uh, if i'm on a roll and creating a bunch I, I like to over create and then edit down to the strongest ideas often in the moment if i'm feeling it i feel I can get a little cocky about it. And in the moment where you feel like, oh, this one's good and this one's good and this one's good, then you show it to somebody or you just come back to it and then you figure out, okay, that one's so, that's fine, but not exciting. And this one is stronger and this one's in the middle and this one's also strong. You can also have the, uh, the kind of days where it's the opposite, where you're generating ideas and you're capturing them because that's what you're supposed to do, but you, none of them feel like they're actually any good they're not feeling like they're working and you're judging them in the moment and kind of you're a, can be a harsh critic of yourself but then you come back and you find that oh one of those ideas actually could work and and you can pursue it further so you feel like you know it but i think 
you know, like uh, what was that Philadelphia studio? They used to crank out uh, the pop songs and they'd write a hundred pop songs, all of which felt like they had a hook, all of which felt like they were had commercial potential, but a hundred pop songs to make the one gigantic hit. And so sometimes it takes, it, it hooks you briefly at the moment, but is it really there to stay? You don't really know at first, I don't think. No, you need to give it that time to get some perspective on it. Exactly, exactly. When you maybe test it on someone and you show it to them, if you're composing for a film, will you show it to them in the context of the film itself or will you show it to them just on its own? It's, uh, it depends on the project and how much time we have to a degree. I've had uh, some real luck with showing palette ideas and theme ideas before we even have picture, but I've also created stuff before we had picture and none of it was usable at all because the picture turned out to be totally different from what I imagined in my head. If we're on a shorter turnaround, um, then I will most likely show it with picture and shape it to the picture before sending it along. But if if we're early enough and can start playing around and having that discussion about themes and palette early, then I'll send things uh, without picture just to see if the my musical ideas sound like what the director is hearing. Are you basing that up on the script then? Where are you kind of generating that music from? So it's a combination of the script and discussions with the director. And then if there is either a book or a novel or a historical context, then I'll do some research into that as well, just to have my head sort of swimming in that world. And so the ideas come out indirectly of from that world that I'm thinking about. How did that function for something like Bernie, where you have this kind of massive amount of real world kind of evidence, for lack of a better term? Yeah. That one, the research was really easy because my partner, she is from East Texas, just a few towns away from where Bernie uh, was. And, you know, Rick uh, Linkletter is also from East Texas. And so we both knew that area well. So able to make playlists of music that people listen to. Uh, I'd already explored country music a lot and I was working on some other country music inspired projects um working with pedal steel and other instruments that you know you associate as part of that palette and then there were all the hymns that jack sang and that was a whole world to really dive into so i i got a big stack of hymnals and started playing through hymns and listening to uh different ways that they were arranged and treated and dove into the world of hymns more than I had really in the past country I'd already started diving into. And then, so I had the, like being in the physical place of East Texas where the, it takes place and then a lot of cultural and musical context to go with it. Were the hymns the first thing you wrote for it? So the hymns are all real hymns. So they okay. were, uh, Jack and Rick and I all had our person that we went to who suggested hymns and who grew up in that world 
And so we got together, we had playlists, and we listened and narrowed down to some of our favorite hymns and then started arranging them. And I also, you know, you know, we were talking earlier about where themes come from. And so I would take some of these, the instrumental music, I would take themes or chord progressions from these hymns and then make my own music out of it. Interesting. So you kind of, the spark is coming from an outside perspective. Yeah, even like as we did a lot of even the sort of source music in the film and all of it's tied together with some kind of threads, no matter how different it might be in terms of genre or instrumentation. Kind of like the film itself in terms of the tone of it. You've kind of got so many different things going on there tonally, but somehow it all manages to link together with one cohesive thread. Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's some real complexity in a film that has so much lightness about it at the same time. And I mean, some really heavy stuff in there. Uh, but then you've got this comic genius and Jack who shows off his sort of act his more serious acting chops but mixed in with that sort of fun person that is jack black uh and then matthew being as as silly as i think he's been in the film <laughs> that i remember um but he's also from east texas so uh, he knew or i think he's east texas i think he's close to louisiana i can't remember exactly what town he's from but he was really of that world as well and so was able to capture it very easily and you know that his accent sounds almost exaggerated but it's it's it comes from a real place <laughs> i remember seeing something written about that film where someone had said it was the first kind of light-hearted film the linklater had done which i found quite interesting considering <laughs> where that film goes at some points yeah uh <laughs> it's true uh, it, it's i mean to have a. Uh, a film about a murderer be your most uh, lighthearted film <laughs> says something. <laughs> I mean, it goes, it's much lighter in some places, but it's like, you know, the before series, the trilogy, like it never gets that dark. There, there, there's no, there's no, there are no guns in the, bef- that I remember in the before yeah. trilogy. Um, so it, it it just ranges from one extreme to another in a way that very few of his than any of his other films do as far as i remember the before one's an interesting one score wise because often when you're trying to come up with the theme you know it's kind of encompassing one character completely if you're trying to come up with a theme for them whereas the theme in that film you're almost trying to encompass two characters and their entire relationship together in a piece of music. Does that kind of impact the process and the approach to it? Yeah, that one was such a tricky one in terms of, you know, I was coming into the third film and the first two films were already so good and they they didn't have a theme like I was trying to make. So I had to be very careful not to, to ruin what was already working. So I wanted something simple and clear, but malleable. And so I actually came up with five different themes and then showed them to Rick and Sandra, his longtime editor and a great collaborator. And they picked one of the five themes and then I based all the music off of that theme. It's very delicate the way it's kind of used in that film, the theme. Yeah, the, you know, they have such serious 
arguments and get to some interesting deep places. And I didn't think the music needed to tell the audience that, oh, we're, you know, we're serious now or, oh, they're really not getting along. Uh, it was uh, like there was a clarity to that in the writing and in the acting and there was there was no need for the it would the music would have made it less serious if it tried to be reflecting on that heaviness that they get to and so i i i never wanted to make melodrama out of what was a very effective drama already um so i tried just tried to steer clear of going too far in that in that direction I, I didn't want to turn it into a comedy either, so I tried to just went with the the thing that ties them all together is that this romance, and um, so stuck a m- little closer to that. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because often in films you don't want the score, or always in films rather you don't want the score to try and tell the audience how to feel. There's nothing worse than when it's a sad scene, a s- sad piece of music starts playing. So is the way around that for you almost just to draw from something else like you're saying there and not try and draw from the emotion of the scene but something deeper in the film? Yeah, trying to trying to give a frame, uh, either a support structure or a frame or a little bit of both. Yeah, it's only in overtly melodramatic things where that sort of one-to-one relationship totally works, whether it's, you know, some like a you know, Star Wars or something like that where like you don't juxtapose something against an action scene in a star wars film it it wouldn't make it it wouldn't work whereas in the sopranos in an action sequence you can juxtapose especially pop music depends on where you are and the the vague uh, but still real entertainment to art you know literary to pulp uh uh a scale and finding out where 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 this wants to sit finding that what is the core thing you're not telling the audience this is romantic they already know that and that's fine and so you're just sort of experiencing it together with them and providing little markers to uh, give sort of chapter shape to the to the film we were saying there, you know, about the category that Star Wars kind of falls into where you can't juxtapose and the music is more used just to elevate and emphasize it. Is that, with silent films, would they kind of fall into that category as well in terms of something that the music kind of has to drive in a different way to something like the before films? Yeah, I mean, silent films are very hard to do any juxtaposition because you're the entire audio. Different genres can work, so you can't, you don't have to be stuck in period. Um, when I first started doing silent films, I would throw up all sorts of different music against, against uh, like Battleship Potemkin, Eisenstein. I'd put up The Clash and see how that looked against it. I'd put up Chopin, I, anything you can imagine, and see what it did to the picture. Because you know, music and picture will form a relationship uh, no matter how far apart they are. Um, the Sopranos example, I think of. I think it's Happy Together by the Turtles, the very opening scene of the first episode where he's beating that guy up and they're playing this extremely light piece of retro pop music. There may be a silent film out there where that kind of approach would work, but you are such a huge part of the world, a much bigger part of the world than you are in a contemporary film or any sound film. It, it changes things 
quite a bit and your your role becomes part of the the main storytelling as opposed to a framing or supporting device you are right there at the center i guess what you're saying there about the sopranos as well with happy together that's kind of indicative of what is going on in his mind maybe and his kind of mental state in that scene and kind of articulating how calm he is despite the horrific violence unfolding yeah i mean that's the fun thing about uh juxtaposing it really invites you to make your own interpretation and gives the empowers the audience to uh explore what this might mean and uh make connections exactly like that whereas if it's a sad scene and you play sad music you're not asking the audience to do anything you're not inviting them to do anything you're you're which is fine in certain very entertainment pulp straightforward context that i mean it's one of the critical differences between when you're trying to entertain and when you're trying to create art not that those are entirely separate things are deeply interwoven um but you know traditionally art asks more of the audience and so when you give people that option of saying what does this mean and then that is empowering and that makes it brings it closer to what we think of as as art yeah you don't want your music to become almost like an exposition in the kind of same role that it plays in a film right exactly whereas in a silent film like you were you know saying like it it can be part of the exposition because you're clarifying a story um that that we're only otherwise experiencing through one sense as opposed to multiple senses something that does I suppose, blur the line between what we would classify as art and entertainment, though, to a certain degree, would be I was very much taking a lot of pleasure and enjoyment in watching a video of you destroying a piano whilst playing it. <laughs> yeah, that um, that's a performance that I've done a couple of times. You can only do that so many times. It gives people very different emotions. Some people find it offensive and upsetting and... Uh, tragic and uh, angering and others find it exhilarating and liberating and exciting and you know i'm careful to the to only destroy pianos that are on their way to the piano graveyard anyway uh, i mean there are many many pianos in the world and a lot of them are beyond real repair it's kind of like a new orleans funeral for a piano isn't it yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like New Orleans or a Viking funeral where like you you know you like you burn that ship and send it off in a, in a last blaze and uh or like you say New Orleans where you're celeb- it's dying and but you find cause for celebration and remembering all I mean those pianos were old and they had played so many notes and had been in so many contexts. You know, the Red Violin film really captures that like these instruments have history and stories and this is the end of their story and rather than just quietly sending it off just sending it off as loudly uh, as possible you know and the who are the you know the sort of precedent to that and people found the who upsetting but also the uh, plenty of people also found it exhilarating and piano players never really got to do that and so i i gave it my best try I don't know which version you saw, but the the Blaine brothers, who I did the uh, Out of Remind, this BBC Two series this past season, 
they're the ones that edited that uh, Chris edited that video. I saw two. There's one from South by Southwest in 2015, and there's kind of more of an amateur one from 2011 where you're in a white suit. Yeah, so it's the 20 uh, 2015 that the Blaines were here, and that's when we met, and that's what led to me working on that show with them. Nice. How would you describe the release of energy from doing that? Because it's different to just playing a piano. Oh, it's ex- extremely different. And, you know, a, a sledgehammer is pretty heavy. Uh, so I'm always, <laughs> you know, adrenaline gets me going and gets me into it. But I'm always more tired uh, and more sore afterwards than I realized. But, the, you know, both uh, the two times I've done it, like the audience has been with me. And so we sort of go on that together. But there is the terrible... There, there's uh, there's horrible things about our instinct to destroy things and our violent instincts, uh, but those instincts ex- exist. And what do you what do you do with those? How do you release those in a healthy way without just building on them or or deepening them? And for me, uh, like playing drums or in this case destroying a piano is a really fun way to release that pent up energy and just let it go plus it makes crazy noises while you're doing it so it's uh, you know sonically fun as well yeah it, it turns quite a negative emotion into a really positive experience i mean everyone who's there then gets to take a piece of the piano home too and kind of has that memory attached to it now yeah the on the 2011 one there was some there was a kid there who was really young three or four and he went home with a piece of piano and uh now he's uh, you know, in high school or something, and he was in a class I taught recently, which uh, or a, a young composer program we've been doing. So it's it's that he's got a literal piece of a performance that I did, and now we have this relationship when he's much older. <laughs> Man, you taking a sledgehammer to a piano in that video kind of has similar energy to Alex Jones giving a speech in a scanner darkly. I find that was where my mind kind of went with that. Who <laughs> interesting? Who yeah. you then worked with? Was that how you came upon him? That is how I came. Yes, exactly. We met uh, working with Linkletter, and you know that was obviously before Alex went down the extremely dark pathway he's gone on since. Uh, but at the time, he was an interesting, intense character about town, and uh, so we 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 met during Scanner, and then I feel like there was some other thing we met during as well. And he asked if I wanted to score some of his work, and I said sure, and we tried it. Obviously, I'm not working with him anymore. He turned some corners that uh, you can't really turn back from. But what what a intense person to get to know. He was actually one of the easiest directors to work with because it was crystal clear when he liked and didn't like something. <laughs> was he kind of known then? Did he have this reputation? Not in the same he way he does the, now, but you know, was he a known figure? In the local he was community? a known figure, uh, yes. Um, more as a quirky, crazy, fun, intense character than... Uh, a, than a spreader of, you know, lies and hate. We of course drifted apart once he switched over to the lies and hate approach. But he was he was known in his own way at that point. 
Yeah, he kind of just slipped down the rabbit hole shortly thereafter. Yeah, I've had other friends who uh, you play cr- damaged until you are, or you play like you don't understand something until you don't. And he just got deeper and deeper into this persona that he had built for, for him himself. And it was it was sad and horrifying to watch happen. Why do you think we do that? You know, construct these personas for ourselves that we then eventually slip into. Oof, that is a, a deep question. And I would only be guessing, but it seems to me that, you know, we seek meaning, we seek structure, we seek uh, acknowledgement and reward. And once people appreciate something about you, you want, it's easy to keep doing more of it. And also, you set a precedent, you know, uh, and you can set up a trap for yourself. For example, we d- I do a lot of shows in Austin because I like to experiment with my work in public as it's developing. And it's very easy to burn out an audience. So you have to be careful and make the, the shows different, give people a reason to come back. And so it's not the same material over and over again. There are exceptions to that. If uh, like a country band that plays two-stepping music, you want to go and you want to no two-step to that music so the, the you want the music to have a uh you want to know what you're going to whereas the when people come to see me they don't necessarily know what they're coming to see in trying to address like how do i stay relevant in town where i'm living for years and years and years and doing more and more shows i i started making the shows bigger and because that was a way to make it, oh, you got to see this one. This is the biggest thing I've ever done. And then it would get bigger. And then there were 40 musicians. And eventually you run out of resources to make that happen. You run out of re- rehearsal time to make it quality. And it, and it sort of becomes, uh, uh, it doesn't have a, a positive end point. So I had to regroup, rethink, and how, okay, how can I make the shows unique and special and inviting without getting caught in that trap? But sometimes I think people like Alex get caught in their own trap that they set for themselves. What conclusions did you come to once you had that realization? How did you figure out a way to make the show special and unique without just making them bigger and bigger and bigger? I think by attaching to them to things that I was passionate about, extra musical things, non-musical things. The Poncha show is a good example. It doesn't have 40 people as, you know, uh, on stage eight people, but only two of them are singers. But it's a very deep dive into this culturally rich, historically rich character and story and place and culture. So it gives it a very distinct quality uh, a separate from my other work and so rather than it being more people it's a it's more deep in terms of its associations and people can explore that uh, with me and with the whole team yeah so the personal attachment to it is almost more unique and special but the scope is still pretty sizable for that one yeah narrowing the scope so the it's easier to get a higher the higher quality you know the fewer people you have the easier it is to rehearse multiple times the easier it is to develop work to communicate on stage you know like when i listen to classical i'm much more likely to listen to chamber music than i am to orchestral music around the studio or whenever uh, that that i find it much easier to relate to and dive into but also to hear what's going on musically it's interesting 
what we're saying there about scope as well in terms of more relating it to like a direct musical sense as a composer there is this perception that an artist must either have you know quite a narrow scope but incredible depth in it or you know when you know when someone is exceptional one specific area or they can either have a narrow depth but incredible scope and be adverse in a multitude of different styles is that a myth can you be both can you have both depth and scope do you think because that's kind of something you've done throughout your career i've you know, I, I definitely lean on scope uh, harder than I do depth, but I do depth in a medium, short to medium term way that I hope gives each piece uh, the, that kind of context. I, I'll never, like my piano skills will never be as deep as someone who is more disciplined in practicing and is more disciplined in developing their technical facility and the voice associated with that. There are cer- that certain kind of narrow focus depth that, that I, I, I'll never be able to do. You know, when you, when you take it out of a musical context and you try to understand a problem in the world or, you know, how something came to be, having a wider context gives you a deeper understanding of that problem or, or that history you know if you're studying you know i don't know if a city has an infrastructure problem if you didn't look at any other cities and didn't think about how these infrastructures came to be and look at other examples of what uh was good infrastructure then you then you're just starting from zero and but if you dive into a much broader context then you you can have a richer palette of ideas and that's what i'm hoping for with the that the actual the wide scope the sort of dilettante quality of knowing a little bit about a lot of things can help actually give that a very different kind of depth from the sort of technical narrowly focused depth i i find there's strength in both and i don't think it's dichotomous i think you know there's, there's a range and people find uh their 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 place along that line um and i i really enjoy the 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 deep dives for a little while and then move on to another project and then do another deep dive so those deep dives for example would be like the research that you went into for the opera when you kind of looked at the history of all that exactly and like right now i'm doing a collaboration about insects so i'm learning a lot about insects and i audited a a class at the university about entomology and i'm getting to know some entomologists and reading books about insects and and historical entomologists and things like that and so it's that is a you know then there's a whole sonic world associated with insects as well and so what do insects sound like uh so uh, that's my current one of my current deep dives. Do certain instruments feel evocative of certain insects in that way? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, you can, a bowed instrument is easiest to get some of those sounds. If you actually bow the wrong way, which I think is probably horrible for the hairs on the bow, you can get a real a buzzing sound pretty easily. And if you bow in a circle, you get a, a buzzing that sounds like it's in motion all instruments have different strengths and different palettes and but stringed instruments like a cello uh, i think is the the easiest thing i can think of right off the bat to capture some part of the insect world i'm intrigued by as well what did you dive into when it came to the depth 
for a scanner darkly because that's a score that seems to kind of twist and turn in so many different directions and is kind of constantly moving and shape-shifting yeah um we had a long time to work on that and we started it was actually the score for last tango in paris which had saxophone i used to play that on the saxophone oh really (laughs) perfect okay there's a tiny bit of saxophone left on in the film um, but at first we had a whole mess of saxophone the opening scene had saxophones it was sprinkled throughout because that was a palette that rick and i were both interested in before the it was even shot but the deeper we got into it the more it felt wrong and Actually, so took away the saxophone and instead started exploring the guitar and developed that palette in place of that. While, while I kept the same drums, the drums were the same from the original sketch that had horns. And then the other thing I did was try to develop a palette where just like the film was shot in live action, but then animated on top of, I recorded mostly acoustic instruments with the electric guitar being the exception, but there are no um, digital or sampled or um, synthesized instruments in there. And then instead of uh, mixing them like natural instruments, putting them through effects that you would typically associate with guitar, you know, uh, and layering them and trying to transform them into something that was not quite natural, didn't, you know, was the musical version of rotoscope. Not, not on every cue or anything like that, but that was part of the idea. That's fascinating. Have you done anything like that before, where you kind of take something from the film and parallel it completely in the music in that way? Like a style or a technique? That's probably the most overt example of it. And it was really satisfying to do in that way. It was hard. It took a long time, but it was very satisfying. Much again like rotoscoping. But Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> There was, I'm sure I have, but nothing's coming right to mind. I mean, I I do think a lot about what is the aesthetic philosophy behind this, and and, and are there any you know, you see parallels historically, like you know, impressionism has its equivalent in music, and Dada had its equivalent in music. So whatever aesthetic philosophy is behind the film can probably be distilled to something that can be applied to music. And that is part of the conversation with the director in the early stages where you're trying to figure out what are, what are the concepts behind this? Not just the story and all that, but where, where is it coming from artistically? It almost comes back to this idea as well of music being a language because in that sense you can translate anything into it. Yeah, exactly. The, the analogies of music as language work really well and and hold up as you know analogies often don't if you start getting into musical specifics it can be very hard unless you and the director have a lot of common knowledge about music and you understand what they mean by certain words but you know what one person means by raucous and exciting music or fun and playful music might be radically different from yours whereas if they're talking specifically about music or what they mean by heavy. Whereas if you can start to understand what they're trying to do with their film, or, or then 
you get more to the heart of the matter and can try to come up with something that fits that. Will you have? Will you ever have conversations with a director about music in that way and try and find out where they kind of sit with music, or do you just put that to one side and focus on the film and the kind of themes themselves? I uh, s- sometimes they already have a strong idea of music that they're interested in, so that then that will st- the conversation will steer in that direction because they are, you know, whether it's a period. F- something or just music that they're excited about so i think it's project to project i try not to set any hard rules about my process when meeting a director or uh, early in in whatever thing we're trying to make even the same like rick on one film he may have a clear idea of what he wants and another film he may not really know and so trying to figure out what it is some and of course sometimes films come or often come with their temp tracks. So I already, that tells me a lot about what the director and the editor are thinking in in terms of music. If every collaboration is completely different and fresh in that way, can the scores that you craft or the projects you're working on ever be a stepping stone kind of stylistically or at least in your mind from one to the next or is each project a completely, you know, fresh slate? Hopefully it's, in a way, both. We certainly learn from project to project and your vocabulary builds and your your skill set builds and your, your my, the arsenal of tools that you know and understand and have access to builds. With every project, whether it's film or theater or dance or, or albums or commissions, like you're, you're broadening what you have to offer and what you can bring to a project or at least that that's the hope then the the what's exciting about collaborating is that because each one is new there there is that freshness about it so you bring your sort of lifelong body of work and skills building and vocabulary to this brand new thing so it might open up a new door or a new path that i wouldn't have thought to go down on my own has what excites you about collaborating and composing evolved as you've you know gotten further on in your career? Yeah, I think it's almost constantly evolving. I think at the core of it, what excites me is learning, you know, just being curious and trying something new, which is why I was never, not that you, if you go in that narrow focused way, you, you can always be learning something about a narrow and focused thing. So uh, like, I'm always sort of restless. And if I hear a new kind of music or a new artist or something like that, I, I'm curious to go further in that and learn from them and, and add to that. So, so uh, this meandering exploration and learning about music and sound always changing and it's always teaching me something new the core of it is not changing in that i'm always exploring but what i'm exploring and what that means to the music theory behind what i'm doing or the techniques or the instruments behind what i'm doing that's shifting and evolving all the time Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER. 
Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.